Excellencies, Ambassadors and High Commissioners, Deputy Directors General here present today, members of the Diplomatic Corps, friends and colleagues, ladies and gentlemen. I should begin before going anywhere by saying thank you to all three of you, Deputy Minister, DG, Andre, for very warm introduction. Um, if I was a teary man, I think there might have been one that may have slipped through the, um, the wares of my eyes, but I managed to contain them. Really, thank you so much. Secondly, let me just thank all of you for making the time to be with us uh, and to come and listen to this lecture. I am fully aware of how busy life must be for diplomats, so I'm really grateful um, that, you, that you made the time to be here. Uh, thirdly, I want to thank uh, Durko, um, in particular my colleagues, former colleagues, at the Office of the Chief State Law Advisor for organizing this lecture, uh, but also for the effort that they've put into the campaign. Um, I know I can be a pain sometimes, um, but I really am very grateful. So the topic I have chosen for this lecture solidarity in international law, solidarity and international law, um, is probably the worst topic that one can choose when one is campaigning for the International Court of Justice. Because it is a sensitive topic, um, which may make some states rather uncomfortable. It is in an atmosphere of campaigning, candidates tend to be very cautious about what they say um, and to tailor their statements to their particular audiences. But I very much would like you to know my values, and I very much would like you to know my vision for international law. The message I will share with you today might be a somber message, um, unfortunately, but I hope to end it on a positive note without misleading you. See, the topic that I've picked is, if you look at it at its surface, it's a feel-good topic. I'm sure we all agree with the sentiment that it would be good to have an international law that is founded on solidarity. But it is when you start peeling the layers that uncomfortable subjects begin to emerge. The message that Andre shared at the very beginning, the message about um, the leitmotif that runs through my work, um, is true of my work not only as an academic, it's true of my work as legal advisor in this building. It's true of my work as a lawyer diplomat um, at the United Nations, and I dare say it's true of my work in every other capacity that I've had to apply international law. At the same time, I think a caveat is necessary. International law does not, at present, reflect the sense of solidarity. And I think this is clear also from the quote that you will see at the back of the brochure. Uh, this quote that is reproduced from the Kasoti Idris uh, book. So this, of course, causes some tension for me. I mean, on the one hand, there is this desire to promote a sense of solidarity in respect of international law. But on the other hand, there's also a commitment as a lawyer to being honest about the state of international law. 
And navigating this fine line that this tension entails has been a challenge. I'm not sure if I've lived up to the challenge, but I know that it's one that I have embraced. I start off by saying that there is an obvious relationship between the notion of solidarity in international law and the idea of an international community as part of international law. Um, this is also clear, I think, from the quotes at the back of the brochure that um, I think most of you would have. But I would like, with your indulgence, to quote from some more prominent international lawyers. The first quote I'll start with is from the late former judge of the International Court of Justice from Sri Lanka, Judge Wiramantri. Um, and this quote actually concerns the emergence of an international legal order and the emergence of an international community in the aftermath of the two world wars of the 20th century. And Judge Wiramantri says, two giant steps had thus been taken. One, towards establishing a universal body of nation states and the other towards establishing a universally binding body of legal principles. The international, um, the international rule of law had descended from the realm of aspiration to the real world. The first step had been taken in tortuous history of humanity's quest for a legal order, which was globally accepted. No longer could such ideas be dismissed as purely visionary International law had made a quantum leap from the utopian vision and non-law to binding law, unquote. Now, Wiramantri does observe that this progress was, and I quote again, not the result of an ordered progression of human thought, but was forced upon the international communities by the brutalities of the two world wars. I'd like you to keep this thought in mind because I'll come back to it when I conclude. In this quote, Wiramantri is not referring to the quality of international law. He's not speaking about the content. He's not talking about values. He's not talking about solidarities. He's talking about the emergence, the very existence of the international legal order itself. But the next few quotes that I want to share with you do, in fact, concern quality of the legal system and the content of its rules. And I begin with a man who initially nominated me to be South Africa's candidate for the International Court of Justice, the man who is undoubtedly South Africa's best international law expert, John Dugard. Writing on the occasion of his retirement, if one can call it retirement, because at the ripe old age of 87, I know that John is still heavily involved in some matters before the International Court of Justice, but writing on the, um, the occasion of his retirement, John said, and I quote again, all this has changed. The sources of international law are no longer predicated on consent. A distinction is drawn between obligations that involve only the parties to a dispute and obligations that concern all states, so-called obligations erga omnes. All states have an interest in the enforcement of such obligations, obligations that are ominous. We academic lawyers are un understandably excited by these changes and do our best to expand and extend them. All sorts of customary and treaty norms are claimed to be uscogens and to create obligations erga omnes. Non-law becomes soft law and soft law becomes hard law. 
as academic international lawyers outnumber international law practitioners, the opinions of academic lawyers become the law, or so they think. State practice is overlooked in our enthusiasm to create a brave new world premised on the principles of the new international law, a world in which state sovereignty is no longer a factor, a world in which the community of person kind is governed by the rule of law, a world in which peace and human rights are secure and in which the energy of person kind is addressed towards resolving poverty and inequality, unquote. There is, of course, as is always the case with John Dugard, a certain self-deprecation in the quote. And John himself, in fact, immediately notes that he may have painted a rather exaggerated picture. But then he immediately adds, but it's not too far off the mark. Several years earlier, about 17 years earlier, in 1994, Bruno Zimmer, celebrated German scholar and former judge of the International Court of Justice himself presented his famous Hague Academy lectures under the title From Bilateralism to Community Interest. And there, Judge Zimmer said, the good news is that today, such community interests is permeating the body of international law much more thoroughly than ever before. International law is finally overcoming the legal as well as moral deficiencies of bilateralism and it is maturing into a much more socially conscious legal order. Thus, a rising awareness of the common interests of the international community, a community that comprises not only of states, but in the last instance of all human beings, has begun to change the nature of international law profoundly. Classic bilateralist international law has fallen far behind the present state of consciousness of international society. In fact, international law has been moving in that direction for some decades now. The rapidly increasing international concern with human rights, the environment, the global commons, the spread of nuclear weapons and economic interdependence aptly illustrate that there is a worldwide consciousness at work today that communalizes and publicizes international relations. In many instances, Forces have succeeded in building up a feeling of, while of worldwide togetherness. However, global respect for human rights, sustainable protection of the environment, and an equitable solution to north-south economic problems cannot be realized by ways and means derived from traditionalist, bilateralist, legal imagination. Zimmer's essay paints a picture of a modern international law which is based on values community interests and solidarity, living side by side with the old bilateralist international lawyer. I'm particularly fond of a tentative quote from Emmanuel Joannette, writing in 2007. And she says, if we have truly moved from a liberal and principally formal law aimed only at ensuring respect for sovereignty or freedom of each state to a more multi-form and complex law, characterized by greater solidarity, which still flirts with the idea of sovereignty, while at the same time seeking to surpass it in favor of a common good, if the goal of international law is no longer merely to respect the freedom of states, but also the promotion of this common good, which could, for example, be the liberty and well-being of individuals this time around, then international law is currently undergoing a process of substantivization, 
which is necessarily accompanied by the desire to harmonize the value of each actor while overcoming some of the most irreducible cultural divisions. Unquote. Abdul Koroma, former judge of the International Court from Sierra Leone, in his article, interestingly, on solidarity, had this to say. The notion of solidarity, both of interdependence from which social law and obligations can emerge, and of communities working towards a common goal or in the common interest, has long been central to international law, unquote. Now, a common thread that runs through all of these quotes is the notion that international law is transitioning from a system based on the individual interests of individual states to one based on community interests, pursuing solidarity. This is a common narrative in international legal literature and even in many statements by states before the General Assembly, for example. It is the reason that we have in modern international law such remarkable international instruments such as the Rome Statute. I say remarkable because the Rome Statute and the system it entrenches, or rather builds upon, challenges some of the most fundamental building blocks of international law. It is because of this narrative that we have an elaborate human rights system at the regional level, at the global level, in which individuals may challenge the policies and practice and conduct of their own states undertaken at the domestic level. It is in part because of this narrative that we have international courts, which, to borrow from John Dugard, um, emboldened by the enthusiasm to create a brave new world, give expansive interpretations of international instruments that are very difficult to reconcile with the interpreted texts. Excuse me. The emergence of concepts such as Juskogens, which has been mentioned several times, and ergo omnis obligation, is also reflective of this narrative. Even domestic challenges, or rather domestic actions, challenging the conduct of foreign relations may in part be explained by this narrative. And this may be a sore point for my colleagues, at the, my former colleagues at the Office of the Chief State Law Advisor, who often have to deal with these challenges to the foreign relations conduct of government. And yet, even with all of these illustrations of international law appearing to be more humane, more solidarity promoting, community embracing, value laden, I have suggested that there is no such a system, nor do I believe that we are moving towards such a system. To be fair, the quoted extracts do not suggest that we have arrived at Nirvana, and in fact, they seem to acknowledge that this new vision of international law is only emerging and that almost as a transition, we are seeing the two bodies of international law existing side by side. Indeed, more than a decade after his famous Hague Academy lectures, this time as judge of the International Court of Justice in the Kosovo advisory opinion, Judge Zimmer criticized in very, very strong words the court's adherence to what he termed an old, tired vision of international law, which he says is obsolete. Yet I would question whether this old, tired view of international law is in fact obsolete. I would go even further and suggest that we are not even in transition. It is not that we have not reached nirvana. It is that we are not even heading towards nirvana. 
The somber truth is that this international law based on solidarity does not exist. It is a figment, it is a unicorn. It should exist, but it does not exist. Now, the question that you may immediately pose is then how do I explain these illustrations that I've shared with you, the illustrations of a, solid, of a solidarity-based international law that I have given above? The answer which I will develop momentarily is rather simple. These are exceptions to the general rule, or exceptions that prove the general rule. They do not reflect the nature of the legal system, but are rather products of the same processes underlying what Judge Zimmer referred to as the old, tired vision of international law. In my view, it would probably be more accurate to say that international law remains based on sovereignty, but flirts with solidarity and seeks to pursue the common good if the common good can be made consistent with national interests of those with the greatest bargaining power. More importantly, whatever progressive international instruments are arrived at are based on the consent of states and arrived at through the same bargaining in which narrow national interests of states are protected. I should be clear that I do not mean to suggest that the law as it currently exists reflect the outdated Lotus principle of the permanent Court of International Justice in 1927. And here, the sentiment of former Judge Guerramantri in the Nuclear Weapons Advisory Opinion, I think, is correct. And there he said, the doctrine that the sovereign is free to do whatever statute does not expressly prohibit is long exploded doctrine. Such extreme positivism in legal doctrine has led humanity to some of its worst excesses. History has demonstrated that power, unrestrained by principle, becomes power abused. Black letter formulations have their value, but by no stretch of the imagination can they represent the totality of law." Unquote. I should pause here to say that there are, of course, alternative ideas about how to arrive at this objective, the good life. Um, renowned Chinese scholar Sinyo Yi's theory of international law of co-progressiveness is one such alternative theory. In it, Sinyo Yi postulates that, and I quote, efforts to seek meaning do not result from innate quality of the atomic individual, but are induced, though not coerced, by the community, culture, and history, unquote. So for Yi, without the state, the individual would not have available many choices, and thus sovereignty of the state informs and influences the perception of personhood. This theory is, in Yi's own word, a reflection of his, quote, dissatisfaction with certain radical tendencies or over-moralization, unquote. At any rate, for the purposes of this lecture, I will, lim I will limit myself to the mainstream. I find the quotes that I shared above, the quotes of Judge Zimmer, John Dugard, Abdul Koroma, Emmanuel Joannet, to be impactful, powerful, and inspirational. But that's not the reason I shared them. Or at least it's not the only reason. I shared them also because in those extracts, we get hints of what a solidarity-based system of international law, one in which the international community is real, would look like. And here are some of the things that I thought I could pull out from there. One, there has to be common interests. And international lawmaking is influenced more by these common interests rather than narrow national interest. Two, 
The common interests are those based on the protection of human being, of the human being, including human rights, the environment, and freedom from violence. Three, these values require putting the needs of others, particularly the most vulnerable, above the needs of self. And finally, sovereignty gives way to these values or common interests. I wish to add one more element which I could not find expressly reflected in these quotes, but which I think flows directly from it or naturally from it. And that is that in an international law based on the notion of international community, where solidarity is key, law moderates power, and power demands this solidarity. Right. So the question then is how can we see these identifiers in the current framework of international law? How do we test this? To test this, I propose to look at three areas of international law, very briefly. International human rights law, international criminal law, which will make Andre very happy, and international environmental law. One particular set of, sorry, one particular set of rules that I will not address, but which is very much on point, is the issue of intellectual, is the issue of intellectual property and its prioritization over human rights. I will simply here refer to what I said in the past. In 2020, the beginning of the pandemic, I suggested, in fact, I should say I um, predicted, and I quote, that the united front that we saw from world leaders at the beginning of the pandemic, that there would be no vaccine hoarding, and that the poorest of the poor will have the same access to vaccines as the richest of the rich, what would be the hallmark of solidarity, would be quickly forgotten and thrown into the rubbish bin of academic ideas when vaccines were discovered, unquote. Indeed, a year later, when vaccines were now available and demands for equitable distribution were made by states like South Africa and India, those promises were replaced by fancy words like intellectual property rights and scientific research. Leaving the poorest of the poor holding the proverbial baby of under-vaccination. There are other examples I could give. The current rules on migration based on the sovereignty of states and the right of states to exclude is an apt reminder that international law at its core is based on state interest. Every state does what it can to protect itself and its people, even if the consequences are dire for other populations. This is sovereignty. To put this in the context of the exceptions to the basic rule that I spoke of, states will assist others and their populations, but only when doing so can be done comfortably and without prejudice to that state's own interest, prosperity, and wealth. Before turning to the individual areas of international law, a caveat is necessary. What I have said above and what I'm about to say is not a criticism against any one state or any group of state. It is simply a description of the state, structure, and nature of international law. Very often when we have these discussions, this is seen as an attack against the North. But in truth, the same dynamics play out in regions, including in regions of the South. Attempts to establish a communitarian, solidarity-based system on this continent are not going to be blocked by the least developed state on this continent, 
they're going to be blocked by the most developed states. So in that sense, the African continent provides a microcosm of the global level. With that, let me now turn to the particular areas of international law that I referred to. It is human rights, perhaps, that is more than any other area of international law that approximates, or at least appears to approximate, solidarity. Every quote that I've given, from Zema, Dugard, Joannette, Goroma, each and every one of them that describe this brave new world also refer to the, to the promotion of human rights. International human rights law is at its core about the human condition. To take the quote again from Joannette, the common good could, for example, be the liberty and well-being of individuals. For Zema, the community, international community, comprises not only states, but in the last instance, human beings. More clearly, Dugard states that the new international law seeks to create a brave new world, is premised on the principles of international law, a world in which state sovereignty is no longer a factor, a world in which the community of person kind is governed by the rule of law, a world in which peace and human rights are secure, in which the energy of person kind is addressed towards resolving poverty and inequality. Moreover, international human rights law is an example of that part of international law that seeks to move beyond sovereignty by addressing matters that take place wholly within the territory of a state, having impact only on the population of that state. Again, here I might quote Dugard, who says, in this international law, state practice is overlooked in the enthusiasm to create a brave new world, a world in which sovereignty is what? No longer a factor. It is inarguable that international human rights law as a general matter is intended to protect the human being beyond the na narrow national interest of states and indeed perhaps contrary to those interests. The question then is whether there is evidence of an international law based on solidarity in international human rights law. To answer this question, I beg your indulgence as I share some statistics from you. According to a recent World Bank report in 2015, the levels of extreme poverty, which uh, the bank defined as persons living below $1.90 a day, stood at 736 million. Now, statistically, this is an improvement from the nearly 2 billion of people living in extreme poverty in 1990. Yet, as with all cases, one should be very cautious of statistics. Um, they don't reveal everything. First, the threshold $1.90 a day excludes many persons living in poverty. In fact, the World Bank's more complex measure of poverty, which goes beyond consumption level, shows that the number of people who are poor stood at 2.1 billion as of 2015. Second, whatever the decrease in the rate of extreme poverty, if we accept the slogan, leave no one behind, then by these numbers, the international community is failing at least 736 million times over. There are other statistics that this report um, refers to, but I think the point is made, and so I don't have to belabor it. This picture of poverty should be troubling to an international community and an international law based on solidarity. So what is international law's response to poverty? Deftly silent. There is no obligation under international law to eradicate poverty. 
None. Zero. Now, you might say, but there's SDG1. SDG1, and of course this is true of other SDGs, does not set out a legal obligation under international law. Of course, the argument can then be made that, well, all human rights, maybe most human rights, are directed at poverty. But even this argument really doesn't take the matter very far. Perhaps to illustrate the point, it's best to focus on those rights that are most closely associated with poverty, socioeconomic rights. After all, these rights can serve as a powerful tool for reducing and eliminating poverty. Yet the potential for socioeconomic rights as a poverty-fighting tool in international law is limited in three ways. I will begin with the first two ways, which are not the most important, but still worth referring to them. First, while civil and political rights are generally accepted as being part of custom international law, and thus applicable beyond treaty rules, there is less consensus on the customary status of socioeconomic rights. This in itself is revealing, but I think that's a topic for another day. Second, treaty provisions on socioeconomic rights are generally couched not as immediately re realizable and enforceable rights, but rather as obligations that a state is to progressively realize and subject to resource constraint of each individual state. Now, these two hurdles are serious, but they can be overcome relatively easily. It is the third hurdle, which I turn to now, which creates the greatest obstacle to international human rights law as impacting on poverty. Social economic rights are couched as rights owed by a state to the population in its territory. Now, while there has been some movement for extraterritorial application of human rights, this has largely been linked to those instances where the state in question exercises some control or jurisdiction over the activities or actors in another state. Indeed, with respect to socioeconomic rights, the International Court of Justice determined that the International Covenant on Economic and Social Cultural Rights, quote, guarantees rights which are essentially territorial, unquote. It also noted, of course, that it may apply to a state in respect of territories over which that state exercises territorial jurisdiction. No one in this room or anywhere else would seriously argue that under international law, there is a legal obligation on, say, the wealthiest state to take measures in connection with poverty in the poorest state. And this limitation makes absolute sense, makes total sense, in an international law in which narrow national interest trumps solidarity, in which the common good is pursued only if it can be made consistent with those national interests, in which sovereignty remains key the sovereign right to choose who to help and who not to help, the sovereign right to be concerned with one's own national and not with the nationals of others. At the same time, though, this limitation serves to remove the fig leaf from the notion of the international community, from the notion of international law as solidarity bearing, revealing the emperor's nakedness for all to see. You see, the problem with this general construction is that it places the burden of dealing with the most serious cases of poverty, those in the least developed states, on precisely those states that, due to the economic and developmental situation, are not in a position to allocate the necessary resources. 
It undermines the idea of solidarity implied by this transition from bilateralism to a system based on, communi uh, on community interest. Let me turn now to international criminal law. International criminal law, like human rights law, is an obvious illustration of a body of international law that might suggest a transition towards solidarity-based international law. Founded on the principle of criminal accountability, which comes from the famous quotation in the Nuremberg Tribunal statement that international crimes are committed by men, today we would say by humans or people, persons, not by abstract entities. International criminal law also, in fact, seeks to pierce the, the veil of sovereignty in the interest of the protection of, human, of, of the human being, a fundamental value of this modern international law. The idea that the well-being of people are placed beyond the sovereignty of states seemed to accord very much with this notion of a solidarity-based international law. But does international criminal law provide evidence of such a shift? The Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court is the main instrument for international criminal law, a feat of international law. It embodies all the values that could be seen to be reflective of the brave new world of John Dugard. Yet, at the same time, this instrument reminds us that the values often, not always, but often, succumb to power and sovereignty continues to reign supreme. There is no greater um, reflection of this than the relationship between the Council and the International Criminal Court. I will leave aside just for now the, the power of the Security Council to defer proceedings although this, this might also itself be seen as a, as a prism through which to assess this question. And I'll focus instead on the power of the Security Council to refer. The problems with the UN Security Council's power to refer are well known. Having this power increases selectivity and thus undermines the rule of law. Those with power and their allies will be shielded from accountability. The rest must suffer the consequences of the law. There's a saying, something like, the powerful do what they will, the weak must suffer what they must, Some, something like that. Now, this itself undermines the notion of solidarity-based international law. But I don't want to dwell too much on it, largely because there's all, so much has been written on it in, in academic works. And also, I think the drafters of the Rome Statute were fully aware of this particular flaw. It is, if you like, the necessary evil to catch some bad guys, you must let some others loose, right? So if we assume that in the overall scheme of things, turning a blind eye to selectivity, that the power of the council to refer situation is positive and, and contributes to broadening the goal of solidarity and the international uh, community because it expands the reach of the court to situations that will fall otherwise beyond the reach of the court, we might then ask the question, whether there is anything else in this scheme that fundamentally undermines the notion of a solidarity-based international law, that international law eschews sovereignty and narrow national interest in the interest of greater good. I think there is. So this power has been used twice so far. Resolution 1975, sorry, um, in Resolution um, 1593 and Resolution uh, 1970 that I had the pleasure of negotiating. You might be, so you might recall that the first of these resolutions, um, referring the situation in Darfur to the ICC, 
Brazil, in fact, abstained, not because of any opposition to the referral, but precisely because, in Brazil's view, the resolution undermined notions of the rule of law. There are three particular factors or elements that concern Brazil and that have subsequently concerned scholars on international criminal court. One, the resolution did not establish a duty on all states to cooperate with the court. In other words, the general duty to cooperate extended to some but not to others. Two, the resolution prohibited the United Nations from contributing financially to investigations and prosecution. Three, the resolutions purported to exclude some who would ordinarily fall within the jurisdiction of the court from the reach of the court in the court's exercise of its judicial function. Each of these elements, in its own way, prioritizes power and sovereignty over the common good and illustrates that ultimately, in the bargaining between these, the greater good, power and sovereignty often win out. I'm truly aware, I'm fully aware, that it may be argued that these are exceptions to the rule. They are, to borrow from Joannette, the solidarity-based international law's flirtation with traditionalist sovereignty-centered international law. I disagree. They are illustrations of bargain. The Rome Statute promotes the common good to the point that the common good might not undermine existing power relations. Now let me turn to the final and perhaps the most glaring illustration that the emergence of a new international law founded on solidarity and in which the common good prevails is but a unicorn, international environmental law. Perhaps no other area demonstrates how deeply entrenched in the sovereignty-centered tradition international law remains. There are several examples. In the past, I've used the law of the sea because I like the law of the sea, but this time I'll restrict myself to climate change. According to scientific consensus, climate change constitutes the greatest existential threat to humanity, to our way of life. I'm sure you've heard that phrase many, many times. There's nothing original about existential threat, our way of life. Two weeks ago, I represented the governments of Sierra Leone and Mozambique before the International Tribunal for the Law of the Sea. And there, state after state, all states that participated, acknowledged the devastating impacts that climate change will have on the world if not correctly tackled. Given the seriousness of the threat, the response of an international system which places community interests above sovereignty and national interests would be an effective instrument capable of addressing the perils of climate change. Yet international law's response thus far has been nothing but disappointing. Seven years prior to the adoption of the Kyoto Protocol, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change determined that what was required to stabilize greenhouse gases was an immediate reduction in emissions from, of, from human activities of over 60%. Yet the Kyoto Protocol provided a target of 5% from only some countries, and it did so seven years later. By the way, even this grossly inadequate target was seen as too aggressive by some, leading to the eventual abandonment of the emissions targets project of Kyoto. So now what do we have? We have Paris the next attempt of international law to address climate change. Yet Paris is no more effective, probably less so, than the Kyoto Protocol. As a, 
as a tool of international law. The agreement itself does not provide emissions reduction targets, leaving it up to states to determine nationally their own contributions to holding global average temperatures to well below two degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. And by the way, this two degree standard is widely acknowledged as itself being insufficient. Indeed, even those that praise Paris do not suggest that it is an effective agreement for protecting the earth from the ravages of climate change. Rather, the Paris Agreement, when it is praised, is praised as an illustration of diplomatic achievement and as a framework for potential future cooperation in addressing climate change. So what do we know? We know that climate change will ravish the earth and humanity. We know that climate change will ravish even more those that are least able to deal with it, and by the way, those that have contributed the least to it. But more to the point, we know what is necessary to prevent catastrophic consequences of climate change. Yet the international law instruments adopted are not nearly sufficient. Why? National interest. Sovereignty. This is not the brave new world that Zimmer, Dugard, Koroma spoke of. This is not an international law of solidarity based on communitarianism. Allow me to end with some final thoughts and maybe some words of modest hope. At the beginning, I asked you to keep in mind Wiremantri's words that the progress that he described was not the result of an ordered progression of human thought. In the same way, ordered progression of human thought desires solidarity-based international law. And it is for this reason that academics try to explain the current state of the law by reference to this solidarity-related concept. I should not be understood, misunderstood. I do not mean that international law is bad or evil. I do not even wish to make the point that international law is uncaring or anti-solidarity. It is none of those things. It is nothing more than a vehicle through which the outcomes of bargain are reflected. It is neutral. It does not seek to harm the poor. It does not seek to harm the vulnerable. But neither does it necessarily seek to help. It is simply a tool whose content is in the hands of those who make it, states. I have often said that the brave new world that many have written about is not going to come in my lifetime. In the meantime, it is up to states to push for rules that seek to protect the most vulnerable and do so even if it is convenient, inconvenient, even if it is uncomfortable. The adoption of such rules, even if sporadic, may help courts, such as the International Court of Justice, to, while applying its methodology of international law, without unduly stretching the legal text, to develop a jurisprudence on the common good and solidarity. This would not equate to solidarity-based international law, but it might create conditions for a better world. I thank you very much for your attention. Thank you.